This week, we're looking at uh, the novel by Wilhelm Jensen called Gradiva, a Pompeian fantasy, because Freud devoted a detailed analysis to it, a detailed analysis that turns on his interpretation of three dreams. Now, we've looked at Freud's method of interpreting dreams and his theory of the formation of dreams last week, and this week we're looking at his analysis of dreams produced in a literary text, which has a peculiar interest uh, for us. Now, Freud's magnum opus, extracts from which we read last week, The Interpretation of Dreams, published in 1900, was closely followed in 1903 by the publication of Wilhelm Jensen's novella, Gradiva, a Pompeian Fantasy, which was soon followed in 1907 by Freud's lengthier and multi-part essay, Delusions and Dreams in Jensen's Gradiva. So the novella and Freud's rapidly published response to it both take place in the immediate wake of his major challenge to the then-dominant science, scientific consensus on the nature of dreaming, which was basically that dreams were meaningless uh, mental byproducts of our our brain activity while asleep. Freud's reading of Grudeva is his most sustained analysis of a literary text, and indeed it's a more detailed and elaborate reading than most literary texts receive from either literary critics or from psychoanalysts. Such fascinated scrutiny on Freud's part is due to a combination of factors. Initially he was drawn to the way Jensen's narrative in its central placement of the dreams of its protagonist, Norbert Hanold, so closely parallels key features of his own recently published theory of dreams and their formation. Equally striking is the way in which Freud sees the narrative's resolution emerge through a parallel with his own theory of transference and its therapeutic operation in the analytic situation. Crucial as they were, however, more was at stake than the question of dreams or of transference. For what the dream book represents is an acknowledgement of the unconscious as a mental system with a permanent place in all psychic life, whereas in Freud's previous publications on hysteria and on the neuropsychosis of defence in the mid-1890s, which we looked at last term, there the unconscious was conceived of as a temporary and pathological formation that was to be dissolved away by the efforts of psychoanalytic therapy, and not as a permanent structure of the mind. Consequently, the detailed signs of unconscious mental processes at work in Jensen's story, both in the ordinary phenomena um, of every-night dreams and in the pathological symptoms of Norbert's delusions, made the novella of overwhelming interest to Freud. It enabled him to enlist imaginative literature in support of his challenge to scientific orthodoxy and in support of his rhetorically provocative stance, as he said in his own words, uh, as a partisan of antiquity and superstition, unquote, in his defence of the meaningfulness of dreams. So what clearly delights Freud and is such a striking characteristic of his analysis is the compelling way 
in which his application of the rules of dream interpretation reveals the presence of unconscious mental processes identical with the Freudian description of the dream work. In Freud's admiring view, Jensen not only demonstrated the meaningfulness of his own invented literary dreams and delusions, but exhibited the very same processes of their formation that Freud had himself arrived at in his theory of dreams and neuroses, so recently formulated over the decade immediately prior to Gradiva's publication, that is to say, the years 1893 to 1903. As Freud observes, the formation of symptoms and dreams by means of compromises between opposing psychic forces, quote, has been demonstrated by me in the case of patients observed and medically treated in real life, just as I have been able to do in the imaginary case of Norbert Hanold, page 54, Freud's text. So the enigma and the challenge of Gradiva for Freud is stated quite clearly, I quote, I was more than a little surprised to find that the author of Gradiva had taken as the basis of its creation the very thing that I myself believed to have freshly discovered from the sources of any of my medical experience. How was it that the author arrived at the same knowledge as the doctor, or at least he behaved as though he possessed the same knowledge? Page 54. The confirmation of Freud's theory, however, that these parallels between the novella and his case materials might provide, depended on the author's ignorance of the doctor's science and its findings. For if Jensen had been reading Freud on dreams, it, it would have been no confirmation at all. It was, however, Wilhelm Steckel, a junior colleague and former student of Freud's, uh, and not Jung, as the standard edition claims, who first drew Freud's attention to Gradiva. On interrogation by Steckel, Jensen duly provided a denial of any knowledge of Freud's work. Uh, the letter from Steckel to Jensen uh, has recently been translated and published in the appendix to an article that I have published on Gradiva and Freud's interpretation, which is in the bibliography on the Moodle. And in that letter he writes, uh, this work of fiction is almost science. In fact, this letter was written entirely to settle a dispute among Freud's colleagues and followers as to whether Jensen had actually read the interpretation of dreams, given the close parallels between Freud's work and the novella. Thus, with his reply, Jensen opened up the possibility of an independent non-medical confirmation of Freud's theoretical models of dream, delusion and transference, precisely by being so untouched and so ignorant of the theory of psychoanalysis. So in his first letter to Jensen of May 21st, 1907, also published in the appendix to, to my article, Freud declares, quote, I am delighted with your confirmation. Freud later acknowledges, quote, the conclusion seems inescapable that either both of us, the writer and the doctor, have misunderstood the unconscious in the same way, or we have understood it correctly. Unquote. Page 92. In his reading of Jensen's novella, Freud considers the psychoanalytic concept of delusion and its application to Jensen's protagonist, 
Norbert Hanold, and Norbert's elaboration of a fantasy about a Roman base relief, quote, of a complete female figure in the act of walking, unquote, whom he named Gradiva, that came to exercise a certain fascination over him. Jensen's novel actually was inspired by a real Roman sculpture carved in the style of the Greek works of the 4th century BC. It is now in the Museo Chiaramonti in the Vatican, and there's a photograph of it on the Moodle and in most editions of, of Freud's analysis. Freud begins by considering the concept of fetishism, given that Jensen's narrative centres on Norbert's puzzling fascination with the position of the walking woman's foot. However, Freud's treatment of this particular piece of technical terminology is an oddly reluctant one. Indeed, he disavows the term fetishism as belonging to the theoretical arsenal of the psychiatrist, quote, with its tendency to coarsen everything, because Norbert's being in love with a piece of sculpture would ordinarily be labelled fetishistic erotomania, and because the young archaeologist's interest in feet, and the postures of the feet in particular of female persons, would suggest fetishism as a diagnosis, unquote page 45. The notion of fetishism is further damned by association with a psychiatric orthodoxy that would diagnose Norbert as a degenerate and as the victim of an inherited constitution, which of course was the very model of explanation of the neuroses that Freud had rejected. Then in a sudden volte farce or turnabout, rather than rejecting the term from which he had seemed to be distancing himself, Freud suddenly embraces the notion of fetishism announcing instead that, quote, in his derivation of fetishism, the author Jensen is in complete agreement with science. Ever since Binet, we have in fact tried to trace fetishism back to erotic impressions in childhood, pages 46 to 47 of Freud's text. With this, we suddenly, we, suddenly Freud and science, along with Jensen, are as one. This circuitous route taken by Freud's argument doubling back on itself, suggests a degree of ambivalence on his part as to whether to welcome or to exclude the notion of fetishism, at least in his analysis of Jensen's narrative. Only two years previously, Freud, in 1905, in the three essays on the theory of sexuality, uh, some of which we looked at last term, had cited Binet approvingly, as he does in the above quotation, to the effect that, quote, the choice of a fetish is an effect of some sexual impression received as a rule in childhood. He added, the replacement of the love object by a fetish is determined by a connection in thought, of which the person concerned is usually not conscious. The foot, for instance, is an age-old sexual symbol which occurs even in mythology. Page 154 of Freud's text. A footnote added in 1910 to the three essays makes clear by implication the specifically phallic significance of the foot, for, quote, the shoe or slipper is a corresponding symbol of the female genitals. This anticipates Freud's developed theory of fetishism in his 1927 paper, Fetishism, written 20 years further on, elements of which are already in evidence in the footnotes Freud added to the three essays of 1905. One new footnote reads, The foot represents a woman's penis, 
the absence of which is deeply felt by the child. And in 1915, the scopophilic drive, that is to say, the drive to look or to see, is arrested halfway at the foot or shoe in its retreat away from the genital object. Freud's 1927 paper also positions the fetish in relation to the castration complex as a defensively frozen screen memory, akin to that found in traumatic amnesia. The boy's glance upward from below retreats back to the penultimate site of the foot or the shoe, so that, quote, the last impression before the uncanny and traumatic one is retained as a fetish. Similarly, pieces of underclothing crystallize the moment of undressing, the last moment in which the woman can still be regarded as phallic, unquote. Page 155 from Freud's Fetishism Essay. What is striking is that Freud's allusion in 1905 to the phallic symbolism of the foot is not invoked at all in his Gradiva essay two years later of 1907. It is not allowed to intrude on either Freud's ambivalent discussion of the term fetishism itself or on his analysis of the phenomenon in Jensen's narrative that had provoked it, that is, Norbert's fascination with Gradiva's peculiar manner of walking. Freud excludes from consideration the emergent psychoanalytic analysis of fetishism, preferring to remain with Binet's general reference to childhood sexual impressions that remain unspecified. As we shall see, any acknowledgement of the possible phallic significance of the foot and its posture would call into question Freud's explanation of Norbert's delusion and his celebration of Jensen's presentation of Norbert's apparent cure. I want now to turn to uh, the Gradiva fantasy and to the process of formation of that fantasy by Norbert, the protagonist. The impact on Jensen's protagonist, the young archaeologist Norbert Hanold, of a marble-based relief, quote, of a complete figure in the act of walking, unquote, is central to the whole opening movement of the novella. The base relief elicits, first of all, an aesthetic response to the figure's modernity, quote, a sense of present time, as if the artist had fixed her in a clay model quickly as she passed by on the street pages three to four from Jensen. And it manifests, he said, tells us, in a quality, quote, of movement that Norbert feels gave the impression of imparting life to the stone relief, a combination of agility and composure, a flight-like poise. Page four. In fact, we know now that the sculpture on which the novella was based is not uh, just one woman, but it was part of a frieze of three women, and the three women are dancing, and it becomes clear that they're not just walking but dancing when it is the fragment with Gradiva on it is placed back with the other two. In sculpture and painting, movement is often conveyed by an agitation of draperies, and their swirling lines are the predominant visual feature in the actual base relief, which, on Jensen's own account to Freud, inspired his story. In the narrator's attention, however, focuses on, and so seems to magnify, as if in a cinematic close-up, the position of the feet, and in particular the lingering right foot. Quote, the left foot had advanced, and the right, about to follow, touched the ground only lightly 
with the tips of the toes, while the sole and the heel were raised almost vertically. Jensen, page 4. So this is neither a standing nor simply a moving figure, but one caught in a second of arrest, preparing its forces for the next step. The narration will return repeatedly to this enlarged and lingered over detail, which is subordinate in the sculptural composition of the original base relief, but it is framed and made central by Norbert's selective fascination. It is Norbert's gaze that picks out and dwells on Gradiva's raised right foot. We are told, he acknowledges, that it was not a plastic production of great art of the antique times, so Norbert is unable to explain, quote, what quality in it had aroused his attention. He knew only that he had been attracted by something, and this effect of uh, his first view had remained unchanged since then. In response to the animated power of the female figure, Norbert asks, quote, where had she walked thus? Whither was she going? Norbert gives her the name Gradiva, translated from the Latin as the girl or she splendid in walking. Somewhat surprisingly, it is derived from one of the titles of the war god Mars. The Latin Gradivus, masculine, means he who strides or walks forth, from the Latin verb gradior, meaning I step or march. There was a temple to Mars, Gradivus, outside Rome on the Appian Way, where soldiers halted to pray for victory when they marched out to war. So a curiously masculine name, um, and even attribute perhaps, um, to be attributed to a young maiden. Along with this distinctive name is Norbert's speculative construction of a mise-en-scene, uh, a scenario not, that is not represented in the sculpture itself, and that is its location, as he imagines it, in the ruined scene of Pompeii. A suitable framing of the elusive, unnameable something that arouses his attention and unaccountably attracts him. The cause of his fascination, Grineva's lingering and lingered over, raised right foot. Significantly, her location in Pompeii is associated in Norbert's mind with her particular manner of walking, and the combining of the two elements signals the moment in which the vivid elaboration of a fantasy begins to harden into a conviction, the prelude to his delusion. And I quote on page six, the idea had suddenly come to him one day that the girl depicted by the relief was walking there, somewhere on the peculiar stepping stones which have been excavated. Thus he saw her putting one foot across the interstice while the other was about to follow, and as he contemplated the girl, her immediate and more remote environment rose up before his imagination like an actuality. Unquote. So the narration pauses and magnifies that precarious micro-moment of stepping from one stone to the next, quote, putting one foot across the interstice while the other was about to follow. His dwelling on this scenic fragment, then, provokes the emergence of a whole street scene from old Pompeii before the destruction of the city, with its temples, porticos, street stalls, taverns, all in vivid colours, under, quote, the glitter and glare 
of the dazzling noonday sun. The noonday hour in high summer, it will, be it will turn out later when Norbert finally himself arrives in Pompeii, is the privileged time for an encounter with the dead, temporarily released from Hades, the classical underworld. Along with this overview of the Pompeian cityscape, the narration gives us a further enigmatic close-up. It evokes, quote, the scorching heat of the summer noon hour that paralysed the usual bustling activities of the inhabitants. And as an exception to the general flight indoors or under shade, quote, there Gradiva walked over the stepping stones and scared away from them a shimmering golden green lizard. Page 7. This cameo, foregrounded by the narration, has a certain intensity of representation that drives directly from the novella's unconscious core fantasy. That is, the flight of the iridescent lizard from Grineva's approaching foot. Norbert poses the enigma of Grineva's fasc fascination, quote, as a question of critical judgment as to whether the artist had reproduced Grineva's manner of walking from life, unquote. Page 8. Although he is an archaeologist, Norbert finds no analogies in his collection of copies of antique works. His experiments in observing his own manner of walking conclude, and his consultation with a young male friend and anatomist confirm his conclusion that, compared with their own, quote, the nearly vertical position of the right foot seemed exaggerated. Consequently, Norbert reformulates the question the, rea the real reality or the realistic nature of Gradiva's walking uh, as, and I quote, whether a woman's manner of walking was different from that of a man, unquote, page 9. This transposition of the enigma of Gradiva into the register of sexual difference and the transposition of the latter into a question of the angle, quote, in the brief moment of lingering of the rising foot, where hers was nearly vertical, his own only 45 degrees, prepares the ground for the comedy of his so-called pedestrian investigations, unquote, into the female population of his hometown and their mode of walking, which takes place in pages 8 to 9. This moment of observation from life for the purposes of enlightenment, unquote, is presented as a reversal of a substitution that had long since taken place in Norbert's mind. Quote, Women had formerly been for him only a conception in marble and bronze, and he had never given his feminine contemporaries the least consideration. The trajectory back from the idealising representation uh, in marble and bronze to bodily actuality from woman with a capital W to women, is driven by a desire for knowledge, we are told, a scientific passion, unquote. Uh, the base relief had struck him as indeed humanly commonplace, and not at all like a Venus, a Diana, or other Olympian goddesses, and equally little of a psyche or a nymph, unquote. Norbert soon discovers that Quote, long skirts generally made the mode of walking indiscernible, but that wet weather promised the quickest results for it caused the ladies to raise their skirts. 
The comedy of Norbert's ignorance of the obvious nature and object of his so-called scientific passion is played out through the range of feminine responses he receives from the women of the town to his, quote, searching glances directed towards their feet, unquote. This is later invoked by Freud as evidence of the sexual significance of Norbert's scientific investigations. Whether a displeased expression at his boldness or ill-breeding, or, or due to his own useful attractiveness, quote, a bit of encouragement from a pair of eyes is encountered by Norbert, both reactions are, we are told, incomprehensible to him. Page 10. Norbert's tunnel vision accumulates a range of observations of various ways of walking, slowly, rapidly, ponderously, buoyantly, but not one that matches Gradiva's. So, having pursued an inquiry into what distinguishes women's walking from men's, to paraphrase, whether under their long skirts the ladies harboured something that at certain moments stands, quote, upright, quote, perpendicular, quote, nearly vertical, Norbert then reaches the disappointing conclusion that Gradiva is not, after all, to be found in nature. This causes him annoyance, Quote, for he found the vertical position of the lingering foot beautiful and regretted that it did not correspond to reality. Thus the drama of phallic expectation and disappointment described by Freud in a traumatic register in his work on fetishism, in his um, theoretical work, is here played out with a certain lightness of touch in this novella as a comedy of sexual unknowingness, of self-ignorance on Norbert's part. I want now to turn to uh, the long first dream Norbert has uh, about the destruction of Pompeii and the presence of Gradiva there and Freud's interpretation of it. Jensen connects this knowledge yielded by Norbert's researchers, quote, it did not correspond to reality to the first of Norbert's dreams that, struck, that structure the narrative, uh, the dream of the destruction of Pompeii by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD and of Gradiva's death in that catastrophe. Freud makes this connection to the dream that stages Norbert's first, albeit imaginary, encounter with Gradiva by applying the first of a number of interpretive rules from the interpretation of dreams. Norbert's pedestrian investigations, as Freud acknowledges, function, in effect, as what Freud's dream theory calls the day's residues, that is, the unworked through and still active remainders of the preoccupations of the dream day. These investigations, so Freud declares, quote, had no meaning other than a search for Gradiva, whose characteristic gait Norbert was trying to recognise, unquote, page 57. That is, so while Norbert thinks he's carrying out a scientific search, an investigation, Freud argues he is in fact unconsciously searching for Gradiva. As a consequence, Freud interprets the dream as a response to Norbert's quest. It supplies an indication as to where Gradiva is to be found by staging his previous fantasy of her as an inhabitant of Pompeii. A second rule of interpretation lays down that the persistence on waking of the dream images experienced by the dreamer, quote, 
is a psychical act on its own, in its own right. It is an assurance relating to the content of the dream that something in it is really as one has dreamt it. Unquote, page, uh, Freud, page 57. So it is significant that Jensen himself tells us in the novella, and I quote, the dream picture still stood most distinctly in every detail before Norbert's open eyes, and some time was necessary before he could get rid of the feeling that he had really been present at the destruction in the Bay of Naples that night nearly 2,000 years ago. Furthermore, he did not succeed, even by use of critical thought, in breaking away from the idea that Gradiva had lived in Pompeii and had been buried there in 79. Page 14. Consequently, Freud infers that the dream scene of Gradiva in Pompeii remains contains rather unconscious knowledge of a present reality, the actual whereabouts of the real woman whom the base relief unconsciously references for Norbert. So Norbert realises in the dream that, as a Pompeian girl, Grudeva, quote, was living in her native city and, without his having any suspicion of it, was his contemporary, page 12. This is the dream's acknowledgement of an essential fact that, as Freud puts it, quote, he is in the same place and time as the girl he is looking for. Norbert and Grudeva, coinciding in Pompeii on the fatal night of the eruption of Vesuvius, is thus, quote, a distortion by displacement. What we have is not Grudeva in the present, but the dreamer transported into the past. So Freud concludes that the real object of Norbert's search must be his childhood sweetheart. Contemporary and now near neighbour, Fraulein Zoe Bertgang. A further rule of dream interpretation bears on the dream's character as an anxiety dream. Its manifest content is the destruction of Pompeii and the death of Gradiva. However, Freud's leading proposition about the functioning of anxiety in dreams is its essential disconnection from the manifest dream scene to which the anxiety is attached. This argument is dependent on a further proposition that all dreams, even anxiety dreams, are driven by a repressed wish that organises the dream material. The anxiety is the sign of the power and urgency of the wish to achieve representation and of its repudiation by the ego. Quote, anxiety corresponds to a sexual affect, a libidinal feeling, and arises out of libido by the process of repression. Unquote. Freud, pages 60 to 61. Consequently, after the anxious affect of, Freud, of Norbert's dream, Freud draws this conclusion, quote, that the dreamer's erotic longings were stirred up during the night and made a powerful effort to make conscious his memory of the girl he loved and so tear him out of his delusion, but that those longings met with a fresh repudiation, which in its turn introduced into the manifest content of the dream the terrifying pictures of the eruption from the memories of his school days, unquote, page 61. Freud's argument treats the dream's vivid presentation of the cat catastrophic destruction of Pompeii as merely the artefact of repression, the imaginary alibi for the anxiety produced by something else, that is, by the repudiation of the dreamer's longing for the loved woman. I would like here to argue that 
what is unsatisfactory about Freud's interpretation here is its too rapid reduction of the ominous drama of the manifest dream scene and its affects. Freud had begun his interpretation by taking as a starting point the after-effect left by the dream, which was an extension of the waking fantasy that Gradiv had once lived in Pompeii to the further delusory certainty that she had died in its disjunction and burial on that one night in 79 AD. What Freud does not recognize, I would argue, is the nature and object of the mourning that is taking place in Norbert's dream. For what is being destroyed is the fantasy of the colorful peopled city in which Gradiva had walked over the stepping stones with the power to scare away the shimmering golden green lizard. Along with the burial of the city, the dream stage is a drama of petrifaction, meaning turning to stone. For as Norbert watches, the living woman, even as she moves through the scene, is gradually turned to stone. Quote, Her face became paler, as if it was changing to white marble. Jensen, page 12. Finally, stretched out on the steps under the portico of the Temple of Apollo, we are told, as if as if for sleep, but no longer breathing, her countenance, with closed eyes, looked like a beautiful statue. Page 13. The dream, in effect, reverses the process of animation by which Norbert's fantasy had, originally, Pygmalion-like, brought the base relief to life. What wish could it be fulfilling, one might ask, in doing this? The relation of the dream to the day's residues, consequently, must be more than what Freud suggests, just a riddling reply to the question, where is Gradiva? For Norbert's researchers had both posed a question and answered it by regretfully concluding that there was no living reality that corresponded to the marble woman with her beautiful posture. So that possible living reality uh, is represented as dying, uh, disappearing, uh, with the city of Pompeii, in which, on which, in some sense, uh, the fantasy is dependent. Consequently, the dream, Norbert's dream, mourns the loss of the hope that had driven Norbert's pedestrian investigations. We are told that he now regards the base relief as a tombstone that marks the site of a burial. The dream presents the volcano's eruption not so much as a release of energies, whether erotic or destructive, as has often been suggested, for, after all, volcanic eruptions do lend themselves to uh, that kind of sexual symbolism. But rather, um, it is presented or described as a covering over, a veiling, and a burial. Jensen's emphasis falls on, I quote, the black mantle of smoke that wrapped the doomed city, the pebbles falling in such masses that they condensed into a completely opaque curtain behind which Gradiva vanishes on her way to the temple, and that as a climax, quote, soon like a northern winter snowfall, buried the whole figure under a smooth cover. Page 13. So, mantle, curtain, veil, snowfall, burial, cover. Jensen's vivid descriptions stages a final wipeout of the image of the fantasized original of the base relief, shifting it from a historic Mediterranean catastrophe to a freezing North German winterscape 
in which she lies buried, metaphorically rendering thereby the process of repression itself. In the wake of the disappointing investigations that had found no living Gradiva to embody in the flesh the promise of the stone relief with its beautiful raised right foot, the dream presents instead a scene of repetrifaction and burial of Norbert's Pompeian fantasy of the living woman. It reconstitutes the sculpture as a tombstone and memorial, as Norbert indeed acknowledges, but one that is also, I would add, a preservation of that buried fantasy, just as uh, the rest of the city, buried under the ashes and awaiting revival, is preserved. The guiding thread of Freud's interpretation of Norbert's dream is the same as his interpretation of Norbert's researches into women's mode of walking. Both are a search for a specific woman, according to Freud, Fraulein Zoe Bertgang. The dream, in Freud's account, turns on an attempt to reverse what he takes to be an original substitution of base relief for real woman. Quote, in the dream, Gradiva, as she steps along, is turned into a marble sculpture. Freud argues that this is a representation of the fact that Norbert, quote, had transferred his love from the living girl to the sculpture, while he ignores the fantasy, right, Freud ignores the fantasy represented by the sculpture with its beautiful lingering foot. So the latent dream thoughts in Freud's paraphrase of them, quote, sought to turn the sculpture back into the living woman. After all, they seem to say, you are only interested in the statue of Gradiva because she reminds you of Zoe, who is living here and now, unquote, page 60. For Freud, Gradiva translates back into Zoe without remainder. The aim of Norbert's pedestrian investigations, his dreams, his apparently aimless trip to Italy, ending up in Pompeii, his encounters with Zoe Gradiva, her therapeutic strategies, indeed Jensen's whole narrative, is to return Zoe to Norbert, to reconstitute the childhood couple in adulthood on the other side of alienation and loss, or in other words, to eliminate Gradiva. But Gradiva, like the power of the dream images that persist on waking, will not go away. The buried, wishful fantasy she represents and preserves is too strong for that.